Chapter forty seven of the Humbugs of the World. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by May Lowe. The Humbugs of the World by P. T. Barnum. Chapter forty seven. Heathen Humbugs number two. Heathen stated services. Oracles, Sibyls, Auguries. Something must be said about the oracles, the sibyls, and the auguries, which, besides the mysteries elsewhere spoken of, were the chief assistant humbugs or sideshows used for keeping up the great humbug heathen religion. One word about the regular worship of heathenism, what may be called their stated services. They had no weekly day of worship, indeed no week, and no preaching such as ours is, that is, no regular instruction by the ministers of religion intended for all the people. They had singing and praying after their fashion, the singing being a sort of chant of praise to whatever idol was under treatment at the time, and the praying being in part vain repetitions of the name of their God, and for the rest a request that the God would do or give whatever was asked of him as a fair business transaction, in return for the agreeable smell of the fine beef they had just roasted under his nose, or for whatever else they had given him, as a sum of money, a pair of pantaloons, or whatever they wore instead, a handsome cup. This made the temple a regular shop, where the priests traded off promised benefits for real beef, coining blessings into cash on the nail, a very thorough humbug. Such public religious ceremonies as the heathen had were mostly annual, sometimes monthly. There were also daily ones, which were, however, the daily business of the priests, and none of the business of the laymen. To return to the subject, all the heathen oracles, old and new, for abundance of them are still a-going, sibyls, auguries, and all, show how universally and naturally, and humbly and helplessly too, poor human nature longs to see into the future, and longs for help and guidance from some power higher than itself. Thus considered, these shallow humbugs teach a useful lesson, for they constitute a strong proof of man's inborn natural recognition of some god of some obligation to a higher power, of some disembodied existence, and so they show a natural human want of exactly what the Christian revelation supplies, and constitute a powerful evidence for Christianity. All the heathen religions, I believe, had oracles of some kind, but the Greek and Latin ones tell the whole story. Of these, there were over a hundred, more than twenty of Apollo, who was the god of soothsaying, divination, prophecy, and of the supernatural side of heathen humbug generally, thirty or forty collectively of Jupiter, Ceres, Mercury, Pluto, Juno, Ino, a very good name for a goddess that gave oracles, though she didn't know, Faunus, Fortune, Mars, etc., and nearly as many of demigods, heroes, giants, etc., such as Amphiaris, Amphilochus, Trophonius, Geryon, Ulysses, Calcius, Aesculapius, Hercules, Pasiphae, Phrixus, etc. The most celebrated and most patronized of them all was the great oracle of Apollo at Delphi. The little fee appears to have been the only universal characteristic of the proceedings for obtaining an answer from the god. Whether you got your reply in words spoken by the rattling of an old pot, 
by observing an ox's appetite, throwing dice, or sleeping for a dream, your own proceedings were essentially the same. Terms invariably net cash in advance, or its equivalent. A fine ox or sheep sacrificed was cash, for after the god had had his smell, those ladies and gentlemen appear to have eaten, as they say, the Yankees talk, through their noses, all the rest was put carefully away by the reverend clergy for dinner, and saved so much on the butcher's bill. If your credit was good, you might receive your oracle, and afterwards send in any little acknowledgment, in the form of a golden goblet, or statue, or vase, or even of a remittance in specie. Such gifts accumulated in the oracle at Delphi, and to an immense amount, and to the great emolument of Brennus, a matter-of-fact Gaulish commander, who, at his invasion of Greece, coolly carried off all the bullion, without any regard to the screeches of the Pythoness, and with no more scruples than any burglar. The Delphinian oracle worked through a woman who, on certain days, went and sat on a three-legged stool over a hole in the ground in Apollo's temple. This hole sent out gas, which, instead of being used like that afforded by holes in the ground at Fredonia, New York, to illuminate the village, was much more shrewdly employed by the clerical gentlemen to shine up the knowledge-boxes of their customers, and introduce the glitter of gold into their own pockets. I merely throw out the hint to any speculating Fredonian who owns a hole in the ground. Well, the Pythia, as this female was termed, warmed up her understanding over this hole, as you have seen ladies do over the register of a hot-air furnace, and becoming excited, she presently began to be drunk or crazy, and in her fit she gabbled forth some words or noises. These the priests took down, and then told the customer that the noises meant so-and-so. When business was brisk, they worked two Pythias, turn and turn about, or, as they say at sea, watch and watch, and kept a third all cocked and primed in case of accident, besides. For this gas sometimes gave the priestess, literally, fits, which killed her in a few days. Other oracles gave answers in many various ways. The priest quietly wrote down whatever answer he chose, or inspected the insides of a slaughtered beast, and said that the bowels meant this and that. At Telmessus, the inquirer peeped into a well, where he must see a picture in the water which was his answer. At any rate, if this wouldn't do, he got none. The plan was evidently based on the idea that truth is at the bottom of a well. At Dodona, they hung brass pots on the trees, and translated the banging these made when the wind blew them together. At Ferre, you whispered your question in the ear of the image of Mercury, and then shutting your ears until you got out of the marketplace, the first remark you heard from anybody was the answer, and you might make the best of it. At Pluto's oracle at Charre, the priest took a dream, and in the morning told you what he chose. In the cave of Trophonius, after various terrifying performances, they pulled you through a hole the wrong way of the feathers, and then back again, and then stuck you upon a seat, and made you write down your own oracle, being what you had seen, which would, I imagine, usually be the elephant, and so forth, and so on, humbug ad libitum. Like some of the more celebrated modern fortune-tellers, the managers of the oracles were frequently shrewd fellows, and could often pick up the materials of a very smart and judicious answer from the appearance of the customer and his question. 
Very often the answer was sheer nonsense. It was, in fact, believed by many that as a rule you couldn't tell what the response meant until after it was fulfilled, when you were expected to see it. In many cases the answers were ingeniously arranged, so as to mean either a good or evil result, one of which was pretty likely. Thus, one of the oracles answered a general who asked after the fate of his campaign as follows, the ancients, remember, using no punctuation marks, Thou shalt go, thou shalt return, never in war shalt thou perish. The point becomes visible when you first make a pause before never, and then after it. On a similar occasion, the Delphic oracle told Croesus that if he crossed the river Halys, he would overthrow a great empire. This empire he chose to understand as that of Cyrus, whom he was going to fight. It came out the other way, and it was his own empire that was overthrown. The immense wisdom of the oracle, however, was tremendously respected in consequence. Pyrrhus, of Epirus, on setting off against the Romans, received equal satisfaction, the Pythia telling him, in Latin, what amounted to this, I say that you, Pyrrhus, the Romans are able to conquer. Pyrrhus took it as he wished, but found himself sadly thimble-rigged, the little joker being under the wrong cup. The Romans beat him, and most woefully, too. Trajan was advised to consult the oracle at Heliopolis about his intended expedition against the Parthians. The custom was to send your query in a letter, so Trajan sent a blank note in an envelope. The god, very naturally, sent back a blank note in reply, which was thought wonderfully smart, and so the imperial dupe sent again a square question. Shall I finish this war and get safe back to Rome? The Heliopolitan humbug, replied by sending a piece of an old grapevine cut into pieces, which meant either you will cut them up, or they will cut you up. And Trajan, like the little boy at the peep show who asked, which is Lord Wellington and which is the Emperor Napoleon, had paid his penny and might take his choice. Sometimes the oracles were quite jocular. A man asked one of them how to get rich. The oracle said, own all there is between Sicyon and Corinth, which places are some fifteen miles apart. Another fellow asked how he should cure his gout. The oracle coolly said, Drink nothing but cold water. The Delphic oracle, and some of the others, used for a long time to give their answers in verses. At last, however, irreverent critics of the period made so much fun of the peculiarly miserable style of this poetry that the poor oracle gave it up, and came down to plain prose. Every once in a while, some energetic and cunning man, of sceptical character, insisted on having just such an answer as he wanted. It was well known that Philip of Macedon bought what responses he wished at Delphi. Anybody with plenty of money, who could quietly see the priests, could have such a response as he chose. Or, if he was a bull-headed, hard-fisted, fighting man, of irreligious but energetic mind, the priests gave him what he wished, out of fear. When Themistocles wanted to encourage the Greeks against the Persians, he fixed Delphi by bribes. When Alexander the Great came to consult the same oracle, the Pythia was disinclined to perform. But Alexander rather roughly gave her to understand that she must, and she did. The Greek and Roman oracles finally all gave out, 
not far from the time of Christ's coming, having gradually become more or less disreputable for many years. All the heathen nations, as I have said, had their oracles too. The heathen Scandinavians had a famous one at Upsal. The Gete in Scythia had one. The Druids had them. So did the Mexican priests. The Egyptian and Syrian divinities had them. In short, oracles were quite as necessary as mysteries, and continue so in heathen religions. The only exception, I believe, is in Mohammedanism, whose votaries save themselves any trouble about the future by their thorough fatalism. They believe so fully and vividly that everything is immovably predestinated, being at the same time perfectly sure of heaven at last, that they quietly receive everything as it comes, and don't take the least trouble to find out how it is coming. The Sibyls were women, supposed to be inspired by some divinity, who were prophesied of the future. Some say there was but one, some two, three, four, or ten. All sorts of obscure stories are told about the time and place of their activity. There was the Persian or the Chaldean, who is said to have foretold with many details the coming and career of Christ, the Libyan, the Delphic, the Cumaean, much honoured by the Romans, and half a dozen more. Then there was Mantho, the daughter of Tiresias, who was sent from Thebes to Delphi in a bag, seven hundred and twenty years before the destruction of Troy. These ladies lived in caves, and among them are said to have composed the Sibylline books, which contain the mysteries of religion, were carefully kept out of sight at Rome, and finally came into the hands of the Emperor Constantine. They were burned, one story has it, about fifty years after his death. But there are some Sibylline books extant, which, however, are among the most transparent of humbugs, for they are full of all sorts of extracts and statements from the Old and New Testaments. I do not believe that there ever were any Sibyls, if there were any, they were probably ill-natured and desperate old maids, who turned so sour-tempered that their friends had to drive them off to live by themselves, and who, under these circumstances, went to work and wrote books. I must crowd in here a word or two about the auguries and the augurs. These gentlemen were a sort of Roman priests, who were accustomed to foretell future events, decide on coming good or bad fortune, whether it would do to go on with the elections, to begin any enterprise or not, etc., by means of various signs. These were thunder, the way any birds happened to fly, the way that the sacred chickens ate, the appearance of the entrails of beasts sacrificed, etc., etc. These augurs were, for a long time, much respected in Rome, but at last the more thoughtful people lost their belief in them, and they became so ridiculous that Cicero, who was himself one of them, said he could not see how one augur could look another in the face without laughing. It is humiliating to reflect how long and how extensively such barefaced and monstrous humbugs as these have maintained unquestioned authority over almost the whole race of man. Nor has humanity by any means escaped from such debasing slavery now, for millions and millions of men still believe and practice forms and ceremonies even more absurd, if possible, than the mysteries, oracles, and auguries. End of chapter 47